0: Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Johnny Torres, two-time National Player of the Year in soccer at Creighton and current Jays assistant coach. We talked about his childhood in Columbia, growing up in Texas, leaving his parents at age 9, his hard-nosed adopted father, what he learned mentoring in South Omaha, and why he believes kids are products of their environment. Um, You're 5'8", 140 at the time. No, I wish. Smaller? 5'6",
1: 119. One day, he brought me a picture that he said he drew for me. So I said, okay, great. And so I look at the picture, and it was... The most unbelievable picture that he drew with pencil of a handgun. I hugged the guy. (laughs) I I grabbed the paper that I signed and I ran out the door and my adoptive mother, Marcella, was waiting for me downstairs. And I'm just like, you won't believe what just happened.
0: This is where I come from. You got a nice little view here. You get oh, to, it's awesome! Yeah, you get beautiful. to scout and just sit yeah. on your, you know, just sit <laughs> here and drink coffee. And this is a a good week to be over here with it's, all the state tournament stuff. It was fun. Yeah, um,
1: the atmosphere out there is just amazing. Yeah, you know, I just I'm trying to figure out a way to replicate that environment for our games. Now our fans are great, um, but these high school kids that come out here to cheer on their peers are just. Uh, different level man. they're rowdy yeah and uh i enjoy
0: that we're 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 looking out a window at downtown omaha and morrison stadium and it's a beautiful sunny day uh do you do you ever kick yourself and say man i wish that facility would have been there 20 (laughs) years ago that would have beat the heck uh out of going out to tranquility park
1: you know what um don't get me wrong i got some great great memories uh of uh that field two on tranquility park um I loved it, um, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of guys that I played with in the 90s that that can attest to that, but, man, what a treat it would have been to be able to have a place like Morrison Stadium to not only play play at, but train at, you know, and I tell our guys from time to time when we go out there and say, man, you guys don't understand. You know, we used to train at local parks uh, when I was here in the 90s, and, of course, played our games at Tranquility, so.
0: what was the, What was the soccer culture like? At Creighton back then. I mean, it was successful. You guys were good, Mm -hmm. but it was different, right?
1: You know what? Um, I will say that although we aspire to be a hardworking team, a blue-collar type team, um, I will say that uh, these days it seems that we are able to get a little bit more talent uh, versus grit and and blue-collar work, uh, which we're always proud to do. Uh, but I'd say that our game back in the day, even though we did have some pretty good talent. I mean, mentioning a couple of names like Ross Pauly, our women's head coach, who was, you know, hands down one of the best players in the country in his time, and Richard Mulrooney and Mark Mayley and David Wright and some of these guys. Um, you know, I feel that back then there was a lot of teams that we beat that were better on paper, uh, but just you know, with the guys we had, we just had this desire of working together working for one another and, you know, just trying to outwork the other
0: team. What did you know about Creighton? You know, you, you grew up outside Houston, Texas. Yeah. Um, uh, what did you know about Creighton University? I knew nothing about Creighton, actually.
1: Um, uh, hell, I didn't even know where Nebraska was, to be honest with you. Um, our coach uh, for our Region 3 team at the time, so we're talking 1994, 93. our head coach was Brett Simon. Oh. who at the time was the assistant coach here at Creighton. And so he sat me down one night and, and spoke to me about Creighton, and I said to him, where's Creighton? He said, Omaha, Nebraska. And I said, where's Omaha, Nebraska? He said, open up your atlas when you get home, and I guarantee you Nebraska will be the staple in the middle of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, it was, you know, right smack in the middle. And so, of course, we did some research, and... Um, made my visit. Uh, that was one of my three or four visits that I had and fell in love with the place
0: immediately. Now, as the story goes, uh, Bob Warming is, is the head coach, mm-hmm. and you come in for a visit or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's like in a cafeteria or something yeah, like we're, that? Yeah, we were at Brandeis. <clears throat> okay. We are at Brandeis. And, and Warming walks in, and you're supposed to be on campus for a visit, mm-hmm. and Warming says, you know, where's this Torres kid? Mm-hmm. And... Simon says he's right there, and warming basically shrugs it off because you looked like you were a team manager. You must, <laughs> you, you must have looked like you were about 13 years old. What yeah. do you remember about that?
1: Yeah, I, I do remember it because um, I was wearing my hat, which made me even look younger. I was wearing an AC Milan hat, and um, I remember specifically uh, being worried because the team that, They had at Creighton, before I got here, which was the very first team they had that competed at the Division I level, had guys like Keith DeFeeney, who's like 6'3", 200 pounds. Ira Filson, who's maybe 6'2", 185, all muscle. Lance Hill, who's 6'5", 200 pounds. Brian Kamler, again, probably 6'1", 180. So I was a little bit... You know... um, You're
0: 5'8", 140 at the time. No, I wish. Smaller? 5'6",
1: 119.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: I weighed 119 pounds when I... My senior in high school and my freshman year at Creighton, I was 5'6", 119. Wow. uh, Yeah, I remember we did our uh, index for body fat, and I think I was something something crazy like 1.8 or 2.1, something ridiculous. Um, But, yeah, so... Um, you know, warming asked Simon where, where Johnny Torres was, and he said over there in the red hat, and he said, you're kidding, right? That's not, that's not Johnny Torres. So that, that is a true story. <laughs> and lo and behold, actually, um, sometime later during my senior year, Coach Warming came to watch me play with that Region 3 team. Brett Simon was on the sideline uh, coaching us, and I went up for a header and came down with a center back on my back and snap my wrist in half, and so I was devastated because I was so worried that now Warming might think, "Well, see that you know he's too small; he's gonna get hurt." And, uh, but nonetheless, you know, even though it hurt at the time, I'm glad Warming didn't uh, didn't back out on 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 wanting to bring me to Creighton, and
0: things worked out. So you don't make it at that size without elite skill. Uh, what was? How did you do
1: it? You know I, I think my biggest thing was my desire. Um, you know, I grew up, always been told I was too small, too small to play, you know, at first they said you you won't play uh, Division one club at the time we didn't have an academy, so traveling club team, and I did that, and then you know, you'll have a hard time playing in high school. I did that. you know you you're gonna have a really tough time playing Division one, you know and and so I always wanted to first and foremost prove myself that I could do it and secondly, to, to prove the people that were telling me that I was too small to play to show them that I could. you know and I just I love competing. I love it. I hate losing that ending and um, it's something that I think has been instilled in me through my parents and um, I think it had a lot to do with my success as a soccer player. Well
0: let's go back to, to your parents. Uh, you, you've got an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grew up in, uh, in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Uh, help me with the pronunciation. Uh, Medellin, Medellin, Colombia. Medellin, Colombia. Yeah. Um, which uh, and your family came to the United States in 1981.
1: 1981 in uh, Pasadena, Texas, which is a small city outside of Houston, Texas.
0: Now you were so you're born in the mid 70s. 76. Uh, yep. 76. Uh, what was Colombia like in the in the mid to late 1970s?
1: You know, it's uh, obviously I have. Vivid memories of Medellin because even though I was very young, I think the reason why I have vivid memories of it, because I actually have very bad, I have a very bad memory, but with Colombia, I think because it's so different compared to what I came to, uh, I still have very vivid memories of being in Medellin as a four and five year old, uh, but it was.
0: And, and those memories are what?
1: You know, uh, a lot of soccer, uh, soccer on the streets you know, playing until, you know, the night uh, light on the street would come on, then I knew I had to go home. So, a lot of soccer. I had uncles that played, my father played. Um, And then, of course, there was the crazy moments. Uh, At the time, it was a pretty dangerous place to be, although um, it's crazy because the people are so nice, and it's, uh, we were not well off by any means. We were pretty poor, but I never even knew that or noticed that uh, as a four- or five-year-old because there was always laughter. We were always happy. We were always together as a family. And so I didn't know how poor we were, you know. Uh, but then at that time, the the country's in complete disarray with a lot of, uh, uh, and I know we've all heard of uh, Narcos and yeah. Pablo Escobar. And, you know, it's crazy because we saw Pablo Escobar in a different light as well because he helped a lot of poor people, you know, I'll, I'll, even though uh, some of the things that he did was awful and, you know, he was a terrorist and, you know, they killed people and, and lots of drugs. And it was it was tough for, you know, coming from the slums in Colombia or in Medellin because he did help a lot of poor people. Uh, but it was a
0: very dangerous time growing up in Colombia. Your, your father was a carpenter. Mm -hmm. Uh, is that right? Yep, absolutely. And and you lived, you guys lived in a, you know, basically like a one room, two room apartment.
1: Yeah, no, we lived in a one bedroom, Uh, I'll never forget the name of the apartments, the Apple Tree Apartments in Pasadena, Texas.
0: No, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Medellin. Oh, in Medellin, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it was a a two bedroom little apartment, um, and at the time it was my father, my mother, my sister, and my younger brother at the time, and um, one room was the living room, and the other room was actually our bedroom, and we all slept on the same bed, um, which we did when we were in Texas as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my father was a carpenter there. Then we migrated to Pasadena. What inspired that decision? What? What? We wanted a better life. Obviously, uh, in the eighties, we heard of other people coming to the United States, and um, you know, as a, as a foreigner now, a U.S. citizen, I will say that. Uh, Even though I I, I enjoy going to other countries, in my eyes, there's no better country than the United States. And um, coming into the United States, I think we all had these uh, aspirations of being successful and and being rich and not being poor anymore. And obviously, that was all uh, things that we had heard.
0: What, what had you heard? I mean, I mean, granted, you were only five years old at the time, Yeah. But, but what had you heard about America? That
1: it was, you know, the, the land of opportunity yeah. and the, the land where you could come and, and work hard and become rich and, and get out of poverty, and, and that was our plan, to, to come to the States looking for a better life. Um, my father came here as a carpenter as well. Um, my mother was actually cleaning houses, um, and I would go with her and... We would knock on the doors of these bigger houses, and I would translate for her because she couldn't speak uh, English. And you could uh, not right when we got here. It took me, you know, a year and a half, two years to try and, and and speak speak the language. But I would go and talk to these people and say, "My mom would like to clean your house," and and so it definitely wasn't as easy as we envisioned envisioned it to be. But nonetheless, we were happy to um, to have even some of the Minimal things that you and I might take for granted now that we didn't have in Colombia. Like uh, what? Uh, uh, the apple tree apartments, hot water uh, was a godsend to us. Uh, in Colombia, if you were going to bathe, you were either, well, my father and I would always have to take cold showers. My mom and my sister would heat up water on the stove and then use a cup or whatever wow. to bathe because they didn't want to take cold showers. So hot water, um, air conditioning, and heater because um, although Columbia's near the equator, in Medellin it can get chilly at night, and you can be cold You know, if you don't have uh, a heater. Um, I remember being amazed by the dishwasher for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, and even even growing up, uh, I would always get upset because my mom would ask me to wash the dishes, and so I'd say, okay, well, let's put them in the washer. And she'd say, no, I want you to wash them by hand. And really? she was just trying to instill you know, some good, you know, good old-fashioned being able to do your chores and being responsible and whatnot. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, hot water, uh, dishwasher, refrigerator. We didn't have a refrigerator in Colombia. We basically had to shop for the day. So in the mornings in Columbia, I would go and get cheese, milk, bread, and whatever else we needed for that day. But we don't have a refrigerator, so
0: you'd have to just buy what you needed for, for the day or two. It had to be, from your perspective, it had to be frightening. Uh, to to come into this new world I mean I- exciting but also frightening I would think oh absolutely
1: um, uh, you know the language barrier being probably the, the hardest thing for me um, I was in kindergarten and um, there was no one in my class that spoke Spanish really at the, at that time no um, and uh, there was no ESL program um, and so I remember vividly sitting in my kindergarten classroom and just coloring all day while there was actually activities going on and we would try you know they would try to incorporate me um but I just didn't didn't understand it so um I think it wasn't until first grade where there was a group of us maybe four or five kids from different grades that met with I still remember her name her name was Miss Hardy and we would meet, and it wasn't even an actual room. It was a, like a book storage room. It was a tiny little room. And we would not go to classrooms. We would go to this tiny little room with Miss Hardy, and she would try and teach us English. And that's all we did. And I remember wishing and hoping to when we could simulate and be in with the general population and go to history class and go to PE class. And, you know, we would stay in that little room. Then we'd go to lunch and then go back to that room, and would be there all day just trying to learn English.
0: So. My wife teaches ESL. Oh, there you uh, go. So I, I understand that, that yeah. world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was your, how did you assimilate? Was, was soccer part of that equation? Absolutely. I mean, I've had soccer in my
1: blood since as long as I can remember. And so just in the apple tree apartments, playing with kids, playing at school, and then say, hey, you know, somebody might say, hey, we, we know uh we we, ha- we play for a team. You should come try out for our team. And first team I ever played for, they were called the Deer Park Lightning. I still remember it was a maroon shirt with a yellow stripe and uh, maroon shorts and yellow socks. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget my mom. Um, my mom's a huge uh, fanatic of soccer. To this day, we talk every week and uh, she's a big Real Madrid fan. Really? Unfortunately, yes. I'm a Barcelona <laughs> fan. So. so, yeah, so she's got the upper hand this season. Um, but I'll never forget, she took me to Kmart to buy my first pair of cleats that I owned in the United States. And, um, man, these shoes were awful. But my mom wanted me to wear them, so I wore them. They were white Converse with the blue star. I was just, oh. I have a picture somewhere in the house, but. You hated him, all. Oh, yeah, but, uh, so I, you know, it started playing when I was five, immediately when I got to the States. And again, not knowing English, and, but. So- I, soccer was a,
0: wasn't was a big deal. I mean, was it a bigger deal in Texas? It certainly was not a big deal around the country at that time.
1: No, I, I, I don't, I, I definitely noticed that, for example, in Medellin, you walk down the street, and you'll see eight, ten picket games every block you go, you know. Uh, just like if you're driving through a neighborhood here in the states, you'll see kids playing, you know, basketball in the driveway or hitting the, you know, the, hitting the baseball or whatever it may be. That's what you see in Medellin, you know, and I didn't see that here. Uh, I only saw it sporadically. So I kind of felt like, yeah, maybe it's a little bit of a different landscape in regards to sports. Uh, but I, I always felt like there was enough soccer Uh, out there for us, you know, but obviously now, knowing what I know now, you know, it's definitely a sport that's taking some time to grow in the States.
0: Yeah, Uh, a big moment in your life uh, came when you, when you met your first youth coach, or Mm -hmm. first prominent youth coach, a man named Carlos Clark. Yeah. Uh, What happened?
1: Yeah, so we actually played against his team, and at the time, he was, um, their division was Noted as gold, which is the highest club division, and this was when I was nine. So we play against their name was Surge seventy six, and I was playing for the Deer Park team still, and we were blue division. So it's uh, it's not you don't you don't travel as much. You play more in your in your region. So or they were sitting. more like a
0: select team. Yes, but, okay. exactly, exactly. And you were more recreational. Yes.
1: And we just played in Pasadena. We didn't go anywhere else. Right. You know. So we beat them, and I did well. And uh, Carlos came over to my parents after the game and introduced himself. He was from Chile, so we saw a little bit of a, a correlation, being that we are both from South America, and he spoke to my parents in Spanish, and, and it was great. And so I ended up, he, me and another kid from that Deer Park team started playing with Surge 76, and that was quite of a commute you know, for me from Pasadena to go to the Bay Area where they were playing and where they trained. But Carlos worked in Pasadena at a refinery, and he offered to take me and my other buddy. We would train three times a week, and he would take us after work to practice and then drive us home after practice. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so, I mean, he was definitely dedicated to us and... Um, so I play for him, and then my family decides to go back to Colombia, and that's where he offers to adopt me. Yeah, why? Why did they go back? So my family, you know, my mother's working cleaning houses, my father is, you know, doing carpentry. But you know, it's it's difficult in that they don't speak English, not a lick, you know. And they they miss their family, they miss their, you know, they miss their friends, and obviously they grew up in Colombia. That's all they knew. And so it became difficult for them.
0: Did you sense that, or was it a surprise when they told you that they were going to do that?
1: Um, I don't know if I sensed it, but I knew uh, when my when I would see my mother um, unhappy and, and, and missing her sister. She had 14 siblings, and so missing her sisters and her brothers and her father. Her mom had passed away, and the same thing with my father. And so, But I will say I was surprised when they decided they wanted to go back. Um, when I told my soccer coach, Carlos, that, he said, well, I think you should stay and let me talk to your parents. And my father said, you know, I think it's a good idea to to give Johnny an opportunity. My mom said, no way. Um, But fortunately for me, uh, things worked
0: out and I was able to stay. How did you feel about it at that time? I mean, that is is an excruciating decision. Yeah, at first I was,
1: um, well, I was nine. So at first I was pumped. I was thinking... Because they had a son that was my age named Carlos who he and I hit it off from day one. So I was thinking like slumber party type thing, you know. First week and a half, two weeks, I was on cloud nine. But then after that, it became very difficult. Uh, I was very sad. I missed my mom. I missed my dad, my sister, my brother. I mean, it was very, very difficult. Uh, but I would say that the Clark family uh, are unbelievable for 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 that gesture that they did. And they always treated me as one of their own. And, and Carlos, for that matter, Carlos Jr., their son, um, to, to this day, I've never met a better human being. Because I try to put myself in his shoes, so for the first nine years of his life, he's an only child. He's always had both his parents' undivided attention. He's never had to share anything because it's always just been him. And to this day, I, I don't understand... How a person can be so gracious uh, and so willing to be to be able to share now his attention, share we shared a bedroom, sh- you know, share everything really, and he had a lot of opportunities because we had our normal um, arguments and fights as siblings do, but he never once threw that in my face and said, "Listen, you're not even from this family. or You're not supposed, you're not to, be supposed here. to be Not once, not once," and to me, that's
0: unbelievable uh at the airport when your when your parents left uh do you remember what your mom told you no i don't remember now. something about uh, you're here for a reason
1: exactly we knew what the point was the point was for me to stay behind for a better life and a better opportunity my soccer coach carlos presented it to them in the light of if you let me adopt your son i'll make sure that number one he gets his education and number two, I'm going to push him every day to make sure he has the, uh, the uh, opportunity to try and go pro, which is something that I've always wanted to do. Um, and my, both my biological parents, I think, were great in not taking that away from me because they felt I really wouldn't have that opportunity in Colombia. Um, and um, I mean, it's... It's it's always been a tough situation because a lot of people um, look down on my biological parents for leaving their nine year old behind, but in essence, it was was a godsend for me to be able to fulfill my dreams
0: and to be able to live out my life in the states. It's a it's a fascinating, uh, you know, I guess dilemma for a parent. Yeah, and you probably understand it now better now that you're a parent. Absolutely. Um, But you know, I can't imagine what, what it must have been like for them, you know, wondering who you were turning out to be and, right. and the man that you were becoming. Did you have, you know, did you have much conversation with them about that stuff? Absolutely. I
1: mean, I, I stayed in touch uh, quite a bit, especially with my mother. I'm definitely a mama's boy. Uh, and I've always stayed in touch with my mother. Um, and uh, she knew how badly I wanted to be a pro soccer player. And so, you know, when I would talk to her about, you know, how my games went over the weekend, and I would dedicate goals to her and um, places that I would go to because of soccer. I mean, these were all conversations that we had, and we would write letters back and forth. And, I mean, she's even though they left, um, they've always been, you know, right there with me every step of the way. Do you wonder what would have happened to you had you gone back with them? You know, I used, I used to think about that a lot. Uh, in the past, I don't think about it too much anymore. But I, I, I'm certain <laughs> that my life would be nothing like it is right now had I gone back. I'm, I'm 100% certain. What is your family?
0: What, uh, is their, what is their situation now?
1: So my father uh, and my mother are split up. My mother lives in Spain, um, which I helped send her there as soon as I signed uh, professionally. Um, they just weren't very good for each other. Um, my father works at a factory, a blue jean factory in Colombia, and my mother is a caretaker uh, in Bilbao, Spain, for an older woman.
0: What about your siblings?
1: My siblings actually ended up, ba- ended up back in the States. Oh, really? Yeah. My sister lives in Katy, Texas, which is outside of Houston. She has three kids there. Um, my younger brother, Julio, also lives in Katy, Texas. And then there's even a younger brother that was born while I was in the States, and they were back in Columbia, that lives in Katy, Texas,
0: with my sister. Are you you close to your siblings? Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, I speak to them. I I speak to all all three of them, and um, I mean, they're my blood. You know, obviously, um, we didn't spend our entire lives together, like, you know, you're generally with your siblings, Um, but I mean... End you know, of the day, they're they're my blood and they're my siblings, and I love
0: them. Did you? It wasn't your decision to make necessarily, but did did you have any guilt about you know leaving for a better opportunity when they were? And granted, they were going back on their own decision, but but was was there any sense of man, why didn't I go back? Or I I don't you see what, you see what yeah I mean? no of
1: course I, and th- there was and I think. I think I was still pretty young in that I wouldn't understand the the entire scope. I think I was so fixed, too, on what I was supposed to do, was was supposed to succeed. And and for a long time, I also looked at it as, hey, I'm going to do well and make it and then help my family in turn. And obviously, in the past, I've been able to help them, probably not to the extent that I would like. um, But nonetheless, I I was able to help um, uh, in the past. And... uh, you know, I think my biggest guilt growing up was my mom, you know, even though I missed my siblings and loved my siblings, I I would long for wanting to be there for my mom, and I think that's why when I was able to help and put her in Spain, uh, I did it as fast as I could, you know. Um, that was pretty much like my, like my adult coming out and saying, hey, I can finally help you, and First thing we're gonna do is send you over to our relatives in Spain, and you and my father are gonna stop being together because it's toxic. It's not good for each other, and she's in a
0: better place. Huh. Um, how did you get so good between the ages of nine when they left and eighteen when you when you come to Omaha?
1: Oh man, um, you know I, I think the biggest thing was my adopted father Carlos Clark for me. Um, and that even though I loved soccer and I wanted to be a pro player with every ounce of my being, there was days where I was tired, and there was days where I wanted to be a kid and I wanted to go to Wet n Wild and Astro World and hang out with my buddies. And my my adopted father Carlos would say no. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's. Uh,
0: he was hardcore. Oh man,
1: Carlos! Uh, Carlos was hardcore, but you know what? He instilled a lot of good qualities in me, and he instilled some character in me, and Carlos, his son, who is actually uh, a doctor now in Galveston, Texas. Um, And yeah, you know, he sat me down, I was 10 years old, he sat me down and asked me what I wanted to do, I said, I want to be a pro player, this is all I want to do, he said, okay, well, I'm going to help you do two things. Number one is you're going to graduate from college, which I thought was far-fetched, because and Miley and Joseph uh, Torres is, I'm the only guy with a college degree, so I said okay, but I want to be a, pr- a player. He says yeah, but education is very important as well. And then on the days where you don't want to train and you find yourself tired, and you know, um, when I'm evaluating how you're playing, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And so he was uh, he was true to his word, and um, I definitely think had I not had my adoptive father in my corner, I probably don't become a pro
0: so your drive was internal but it was also external absolutely Uh, did you did you have any rebellion against that oh of
1: course i mean shoot you know i'm growing up i'm trying to find my self-identity of course we 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 butted heads but um i learned pretty quickly though that his head was a little harder than mine (laughs) but but uh you know i i love my adoptive father um I feel that we're we're kind of getting away from, and then when I say we, I say as a society. I just love the way his approach was to raise his son Carlos and me, and that's pretty much black and white. You know, I feel like nowadays it's 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 colored and it's you know it's everything's comfortable and the kids make decisions. And, all, you know. Exactly, and it's just that's not the way I was raised. I was raised. All right, it's either A or B, and that's it. You're not gonna get this choice and this choice and this. Cho- I mean, I I know there's something to be said for that, but with my with my, my, my do- with my adoptive father, it was black or white, and you know he was fair, he was honest, uh, he was hardworking, he's disciplined. Um, he's everything that I've wanted to be, and I think he's had a lot to do with um, molding me into the person I've become.
0: Are you that way as a coach and as a parent now? I try to be.
1: I try to be. I know that there was times where he was very hard, and so I try to be sensitive to that. But I, I try. I try to be because, like I said, I feel like nowadays our society is kind of going away from that. Huh.
0: Uh, okay, so so let's let's jump ahead to Creighton. Uh, you come up here at a time when the program is is really just kind of getting its feet under itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you? They were great players. Uh, but what, what did you think at the time? Because Creighton soccer was like you said, it was it was just a it was almost a brand new Division One program at the time.
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, one of the biggest thing for us, and I say us, because there was about six players that Brett Simon brought to Creighton from that region three team. Ross Pauley being one of them, Richard Mulroney being another one, Mark Maidley, um, Chris Michner. So there was a good group, there was a good nucleus of us that we spoke and stayed in touch and through the process of deciding where we wanted to go to school, we're staying in touch about it. And the one thing that was a consistent sentiment throughout the group was, hey, listen, here's Creighton. It's a school that is small. It's well-supported in regards to athletics. It's a great academic school. Why don't we go and... Try and make that program come into the Division One and make a splash because it already it already had done that in its initiation, where they went nineteen and zero and were ranked number one in the country in nineteen ninety one, which was a year after they started. You know how do we keep this upward, you know, motion for the program and be able to go out and play these big monster programs, St. Louis, Indiana, Clemson. I mean these bigger schools that are supposed to just blow these little fish in the pond out of the water. You know, and to to us, that was attractive. You know, we were this small little mid-major Jesuit school in the Midwest playing against some of these giants.
0: You like the underdog role. I love it.
1: I love it. And to this day, even as a coach, I just, I I get a kick out of it. Uh, You know, you're playing against these schools that have 30, 40, 50,000 students, and here's Creighton with 4,500 you know, three thousand graduate students and and we're playing against these monsters and I just I just I just
0: I love it. You became a superstar as a junior in nineteen ninety six. how did that happen? You
1: know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was a superstar.
0: You were the national <laughs> you, were, you, you were national player of the year in nineteen ninety six. You were two-time national player of the year. Well,
1: you know what? I tell you what, which uh, is
0: which is just unbelievable. Well, for, our, for Creighton University, our
1: team at Creighton, the one thing that I when I played, the, the one thing that was very clear to everybody on 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 that team was our roles. Everybody knew their role, and everybody executed their role and came together as a team. We were, I mean, I, I know it sounds cliche or it sounds cheesy to say but man we were inseparable we did everything as a team and it was never organized by the coaches you know we would go bowling we would go have cali taco whatever it may be we'd get together and 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 just bull crap you know and we would do it all as a unit we were so tight we were so tight and everybody knew their role i think it made things easy in that way um
0: well your role was to score well, I always loved scoring. So
1: <laughs> I always loved scoring. I wish I would have done a little more as a professional, but you know, um, things worked out in '96, and we had a uh, we had a great group.
0: The uh, did they call it the College Cup then or not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we
1: went to Richland in '96. It was our first first College Cup for yeah.
0: for Creighton University. What do you remember about that experience?
1: Oh man, I was on cloud nine. I was so pumped. I remember. The day before the game, we were training, and I was so amped. Um, I, I remember I tweaked my ankle a little bit in practice. Um, and just out of just pure excitement, you know, just it was like the first 10 minutes of warm-ups. You know, we're playing like 5v2 or something. I'm just so excited and running around, and I kind of tweaked my ankle. But, I mean, I didn't even feel it during the game. I was just I was amped. I was so excited. Uh,
0: At that point, you'd really become, you know, I I know you're downplaying it, but, but, you know, fans would go to games, and, you know, they'd all kind of crowd around you. Kids would crowd around you after games. Uh, You had this sort of charisma. You'd sign autographs. You'd take pictures. You know, you'd you'd dance with with kids. (laughs) Uh, What what was – who was that guy? Where did he come from?
1: You know, I've always enjoyed um, – being able to relate to, to kids um, even to this day just I, I love being able to hang out with the kids and the thing I like about the kids is um, they're genuine you know there's not there's not many kids that I know there's not many five six eight nine year-old kids that I know that are trying to hide something from you they're just genuine people and uh, I always enjoyed my interactions with them um, and growing up I remember going to the stadium to watch Medellin with my mother, and man, I would just, just being in the presence of these soccer players, uh, it would just fill me. Um, I specifically remember sitting in our seats, and my mom and I would take about five buses to get to the stadium to get downtown, and we'd get there about an hour and a half early before our games, and I'd be full kit, cleats, everything, and I would do Every exercise that guys were doing on the field, in my chair, trying to do like warm-up. I mean, I'm four years old, you know, and that's just something that's always stuck with me. So then when I was playing, even though I wasn't at the level that these guys were in Medellin, I remember myself, and so I kind of felt like I could relate to these kids. I remember how I was seeing these players, and so I've always kept that with me throughout my career.
0: At the same time, you, you had a very interesting major, uh, an unusual major mm-hmm. for a big-time athlete. Social work was your major. Yeah. Uh, and you'd go down to South Omaha mm-hmm. for, you know, four or five hours a day sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, and, and spend time at Guadalupe Hall. Absolutely. And, you know, you're you're mentoring and being around, uh, you know, South Omaha at a fascinating time where, mm. where immigration is, is really... Uh, you know, picking up, and I'm I'm sure you were somewhat of a role model down there. What What do you remember about that experience? You know that
1: that that was eye opening to me. Um, one of the things that I didn't do much in my first two years at Creighton is I really never left campus. Huh? I was always on campus, so I, I didn't really know what the layout of Omaha was. And even to this day, it's I mean the, I I feel the lines the lines are very hard in that. You know, you have South Oak, which is predominantly Hispanic, and West West Omaha is more Caucasian, and then North Omaha is African American. And so at the time, I really didn't notice that because I was kind of in this bubble at the university level. But once I got a car and started to expand, I thought, wow, this is crazy. Like, how does, you know, you?" I wondered how that happened. And so I tried to, um, I, I'd go into North Omaha and get a haircut every Wednesday at Charlie's Barbershop, Charlie's Barbershop. And I wouldn't let Charlie cut my hair. I let, I let Regina cut my hair. And I did it for four years. And just because I loved going into North O to see, you know, another facet of Omaha. And I'd go to South Omaha and go to this Guadalupe Hall and hang out with the, with the kids down in South. Um, and I just always enjoyed being able to get to know people and get to know different cultures. and But to me, I, I had a soft spot for children. And I think that's because my adopted mother, Marcella, um, owned her own daycare. Sure. It was called Pine Cottage in Dickinson, Texas. She owned her own daycare. And so my adopted brother, Carlos, and I would work there in the summers. And even though we were just kids ourselves, we're 14, 13, we're helping out with the kids at the daycare, and so... Maybe that has something to do with why I enjoyed being around children as much.
0: How, how was South O in 1996? How was it similar and different to Columbia?
1: Um, I, I, and I don't know if it was the language thing. Um, definitely not a language thing for me in 96 because I already spoke English. But I don't know. I, again, Dirk, I just I, I feel like I could relate to some of these kids. You know, and some of the things that maybe they were experiencing at home. You know, a lot of these kids, there was six, seven, eight people living in one household. You know, and there'd be three or four adults that would all work, and then they'd come together to pay the bills and pay the rent. You know, uh, there'd be one car per household, and so the one, you know, they would all come together to get that car, uh, but then one person would drive it. And so, uh, if it's Dirk that's taking Johnny and, and Carlos to work then you're dropping me and Carlos off at work, and then you go to your job. And then at the end of the day, either we're taking the bus or you're picking us up. I mean, and so I think I relate it to a lot of these people. But one of, the, one of the stories that sticks with me to this day is I was at Guadalupe Hall, and I've always been a firm believer that you are a product of your environment. You know, and if, if, you, if you have great things around you, if you have opportunity around you and people to support and help you, Eventually, you know, you'll become a successful person. And I think if I'm in Colombia, living how we were living, I don't think I'd become as successful as I am today because I feel like I've, I've been successful. There was this seven, maybe eight-year-old boy at the time. I don't remember his name. And I couldn't tell you how good of an artist he was. I mean, it was Unbelievable. He was an unbelievable artist. And one day he brought me a picture that he said he drew for me. So I said, okay, great. And so I look at the picture, and it was the most unbelievable picture that he drew with pencil of a handgun that I'd ever seen. I mean, this picture was unbelievable. But I said to him, what made you want to draw a handgun? I'm getting goosebumps telling you the story. And it said it was my uncle's gun, and so I was looking at it as I was drawing it. So, like, to me, this kid's drawing a gun. You know, he's seven, eight years old, but he's amazing at the way he's drawing it. But the problem is he's drawing a gun. You know, and so, ugh. <laughs> <clears throat> To me, that's it shows that you're a product of your environment. I mean, what about if that kid's in a different environment where he's able to, you know, develop his skill, his trait, but not drawing
0: guns, you know? What about? You're tearing up talking about it. Yeah,
1: it's crazy. It, it, it hit me, you know? Um, and um, But those are just things that I enjoyed doing while I was here in college. And I always felt that it was a way of me also giving back, not not out of necessity, I didn't feel this need that I needed to give back, but I, it made me feel good, and it made me,
0: uh, Part of it makes you feel helpless,
1: too, doesn't it? It's tough. It's, it's, it's tough because, um, there was times where I would come home and I would worry about these kids, you know, I did some uh, work with big brothers, big sisters as well, and you would take it home, you know, and so that aspect of it was troubling, um... Like, like you say, make you feel helpless knowing that, you know, you spent this hour and a half with your little brother, uh, part of the program and you know now that, it, that evening, you're in your dorm and you're sleeping and you're well, but maybe this kid is in a really bad situation at home maybe there's a lot of abuse going on or maybe they're just not in a safe environment and that part of it is pretty difficult.
0: Um, in the fall of 96 you you earned your citizenship. Yeah. You went back to Houston, Texas, and you uh, you received your citizen. I think you scored four goals against College of Charleston. Yeah, And then the, the same week, you went down and got your citizenship. Yeah. That had to be a big moment. It was awesome. Um,
1: I remember studying for the test, and I was really PO'd because I thought, man, these questions are impossible. And I'm sorry, but if you give this to 10 Americans at the time, obviously I wasn't a citizen. I said, They're gonna have a hard time with it, you know. It was hard. It was it was a lot of information, and so, like you said, we're on the East Coast at this tournament, and I'm studying for this test, you know, to get my citizenship, and I'm petrified. So I fly back to Houston, and you go into it was downtown. I don't remember the name, James James something Hall, and I go upstairs, and you have an assigned counselor to do your case. I walk into his office, I don't remember his name, but um, he's asking me how he's how I'm doing and he's very calm and relaxed and I'm I'm trying to keep it together because I'm nervous about taking this test and he's asking me where I'm at and what I've been doing and I'm telling him I'm at Creighton and you know I'm a junior now and you know I wanna be a pro and I wanna get my degree and this, that and the other. And then he gave me a piece of paper and a pen and he said, Write down on that piece of paper I live in Dickinson, Texas, which is where I went to high school, where I was adopted. So I wrote it down, and then he said, write down, I attend Creighton University. So I write that down, he looks at it, he says, okay. He asked me how many flags were on the star, or how many uh, stars were on the flag. I said, 50. He said, well, what are those stars? And I said, well, they signify the states. And he says, okay. So then he said, sign here, sign there. He says, um... Um, you'll be getting your certification of uh, citizenship in the mail in the next four to to six weeks. I said, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, what's he doing? And he said, you're done. That was it? And I said, what? And he said, uh, you're done. I mean, clearly you're an upstanding citizen and you're going to college, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you don't need to go take this test. And, I mean, part of me was upset because I studied so hard (laughs) for it. But the other part of me was just 100% relieved. Like, I hugged the guy, <laughs> I, I, I grabbed the paper that I signed, and I ran out the door, and my adoptive mother, Marcella, was waiting for me downstairs, and I'm just like, you won't believe what just happened. Like, I'm done. So, it was pretty neat. You would have passed it anyway. No, bro. I hope so. <laughs>
0: I hope so. How do you feel, if mean, the immigration issue has not gone away. Yeah. Uh, it's. It's become more of a hot button. Yeah, uh, and I know it's you know. But but what what did your experience, what perspective, how did that change your perspective on you know the American immigration? Right. Immigration? You know,
1: obviously, I'm 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 grateful that it was able to work work out for me. Um, obviously, I understand that there's dangerous people that are from other countries that want to come into our country to do harm, and I get that that whole immigration piece, but I also think we have to be sensitive to those that have come over to this country for a better life, and to work, and and, and to roll their sleeves up, and and, and get after it to look for a better life. I think we have to be sensitive to that, you know. Um, We are a melting pot in the United States, and I feel like this country is built on that melting pot. We're from all over the world, and um, I think we're at times, we're losing our sensitivity towards that. There's some people that maybe feel that this is their country because this is where they were born, but maybe they should look a little bit and see what their history is and where their founders came from, and and, and understand that you know we are a country of immigrants, whether you like it or not. I mean, when you look at the history, it's it's all there, and I think at times we lose our sensitivity to that.
0: The 1998 MLS draft, you were the number five overall pick, uh, mm-hmm. New England Revolution. And you played, what, 10 years professionally, I think?
1: Probably. Yeah, so 11, and then I retired for two years, and then I came out of retirement for one more season. I played for the Omaha Vipers.
0: Yeah, you were like Michael Jordan coming back. <laughs> what, was the, what was the MLS like in 1998, 19, you know, those first few years? Cause... Yeah, I mean,
1: obviously it was... I think is very different than what it is now. I think the league has gotten younger now, which is a good thing. Um, but back then, you had a lot of older pros coming in from other markets. Obviously, the league was still trying to find its way. Um, I think the league minimum at the time was twenty-four thousand a year, um, which. What did you make? Um, I well, you know, ninety six helped me a little bit, so I actually made thirty thousand okay. a year, uh, my my rookie season. Uh, but yeah, the the league was still trying to find its way and trying to grow in different ways. Um, it's definitely in a much better place now, um, and the soccer's changed a bit. And like I said, it's gotten younger. Um, but man, I was, I was loving
0: life. Did you think about going to Europe? I mean. I know you eventually spent some time here. Yeah, no,
1: I, I wanted to. Um, I tried. Uh, I, I looked at doing it a couple of times. And um, I got my sophomore year, after my sophomore season, we went with Creighton to France. And the team did well, and I showed well. And I, asked, I was asked by R.C. Lenz to stay for a trial, for a two-week trial. Uh, but my adoptive father promptly said, no, you got school, so I had to come back. And then um, later, my junior year, we went to the World University Games in Sicily, in Italy, so I, pl- I went there with the U23 national team to play in that tournament, and I did quite well, and again, was asked by, at the time, it was Palermo, who's now division one, Serie A, at the time, I think they were Serie C, maybe, third division. Uh, and again, my father promptly said, no, you got to come back for school. So I came back for school. Uh, but, you know, it was obviously something that I envisioned myself doing. But at the time, there wasn't much here in regards to pro soccer, other than the A-League was here, which is now the USL. Um, the MLS actually started in 96, and I'd been dreaming of being a pro player overseas somewhere before that. So the MLS definitely... Um, presented itself as an opportunity to be able to play in the United States, uh, which was a plus for me.
0: You have a little bit of a regret or disappointment about professional your professional career. Why?
1: Absolutely. I
0: mean, obviously,
1: um, you always envision yourself doing great at everything that you do, and I've, I felt that professionally I could have uh, given more, you know, um, had more of an impact um, at the teams that I played in. Um, but, you know, it. Uh, there were certain situations that maybe didn't help um, the younger player and that even though I was um, uh, drafted in the first round and whatnot, uh, in place uh, with the MLS at the time, there was not much of a development, uh, how do you say, they didn't have really anything in place where they were going to develop their younger players. It was more so of a, it was a big picture, big scheme type thing. It's the team. Um, We're trying to make, we're trying to make it with these 25 guys, regardless of, you know, your top dog is 30 or 27. And then you have some guys sprinkled here and there that are 18, 20, 21. You know, it was just, this is the team and we're trying to move forward with it. Uh, And so in that regard, I felt like, Maybe had I had more uh, of a younger player's route, if you will, where they help you develop, maybe things are differently, but I'm not making excuses for it. Your,
0: your style was would have fit better outside the U.S., right? I mean, professionally? I mean, um, in South America or in, a Europe, in Europe?
1: I don't know, Dirk. I think it just depends on the team. Okay. I, I, I really do. I don't think it really depends on the country. Um you know, at the revolution I was a bit unfortunate in that actually I was there four seasons, almost five, and I played for five different coaches. You know, that makes it tough. You know, especially if you're the younger player. Because, you know, you put in your work, you establish yourself, you prove yourself, and then all of a sudden a new coach comes in and guess what, you're all since you're the younger guy you're all the way to the bottom of the totem pole again and so here I go again. Reestablish build trust, you know, and then you go to another coach. So I think that that was a bit unfortunate. Um, You know, after my fourth season, I got uh, traded to the Miami Fusion, and that was actually uh, a pretty pretty cool deal in that at the time when I got traded, New England was in last place, and I got traded to Miami Fusion, which was in first place. So I thought, well, I kind of made out okay here and that year we were the regular season champs we were the best attended team in the league that year and then at the end of the season we folded so again you know the MLS was at a state where it wasn't completely settled yet and that year Miami Fusion and Tampa Bay Mutiny folded on the same year and so that's when I went off to just play a-League in the summer, and they only paid six months out of the year. And then I would play indoor professional league in the winter, and they only paid six
0: months out of the year, so. Uh, Creighton basically begged you to come back. I mean, they didn't they save a spot for you, essentially? For my senior year? Yeah, you know. <laughs> no, 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 for coaching. Oh,
1: oh. <laughs> well, you know what? Coach Warming was was very gracious uh, to recruit me and and... and, and helped Brett Simon bring me here as a player. And then um, he called me up and said, hey, just so you know, there's an opportunity for you to come back and finish your last semester. Because I always wanted to finish my degree. That was always my intent. Uh, But to get my social work degree from Creighton, they wanted me to do it here. So even though I tried to finish my degree when I was in Boston and in Miami and Minnesota, um, I was always told the same thing. You have to come back. If you want your Creighton degree, you have to get it here, not somewhere else. So it just all worked out. You know, I'd been playing at the time 11 years, and it just seemed right for me to be able to come back, retire from soccer, come back, finish my degree. And in doing so, um, Bob Warming was gracious enough to offer me an assistant role as soon as I got my degree.
0: Nine, Nine years later, you're still here. I'm
1: still here. And I love it. Uh, I loved Omaha as a student athlete, and I love it now as a as a working adult. And I love it. What that. do you I want to it. do?
0: I mean, you're you know mid forties. What what are you? What's your ambition? I want to be a head
1: coach. You know, obviously, um, you know, I've been doing it for quite a bit now, and definitely want to be a, a head coach. Um, I want to be a head coach at a place where hopefully soccer is supported, um, with great, you know, support base and um, you know, with a community that believes in their product, like I know our community believes here. And so eventually, I don't, I don't want to say never, but I don't think I'd want to go into trying to coach into the pro ranks. I really love this age um, where our student-athletes right now, you know, they're right where they're trying to decide what it is they're going to do with their lives, and I try to be influential and try and be here for them, just like uh, Bob and, and Pray were for me.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you think the United States needs to do developmentally to bridge the gap globally in soccer. I
1: I just think that we need to start with our kids a little earlier. You know, um,
0: I know that the academy
1: has now incorporated uh, 14, 15s. Um, You know, before it was just uh, 15, 16, 17, 18. And now they've incorporated a little younger. But I... I still think that you need to start with these kids at
0: eight, nine, and
1: ten. You know, because even even you mean, it,
0: you mean it's too recreational at that age. Yes, it needs to be more organized. Absolutely,
1: yeah. it, it's got it's got it's got to be better coaches. I mean, God bless these parents that volunteer their time to go coach their kids' teams and whatnot. But you have a lot of parents that are doing so that don't know the correct way to show that. Uh, Show a kid how to pass the ball, how to receive a ball, you know, when they're not taking the correct approach. And so by the time this kid's 14, 15, and now they're getting into academies, it's too late. There's a lot of kids even in our work here at Creighton where, you know, they get here, they're now 18. And they've been passing incorrectly for the last 10 years of their life. You know, and so it's like, how do you break them here? You know, and I'm, I'm a huge fundamentals guys. I'm a huge fundamental guys. You have to be technically sound, you know, and the best teams in the world do it every every day. They work on building blocks, fundamentals.
0: It's hard because there's a movement in American sports. There, there's sort of a, a backlash against early specialization and, you know, yeah. getting too serious too soon. Right. Uh, and yet in soccer... It feels like if you don't do that, you're really in trouble.
1: It's tough because, at the end of the day, you're playing with your feet, with this ball that you're now supposed to manipulate, while other people are trying to take it away from you. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't get to call timeout. You don't get to try and think of a play that you guys ran the night before. You know, so it's it's basically it to me. It's it's a player sport, and you have to be able to think of how to keep the ball away from you and what options do I have to play others into the game in a second you know and if you can't do that and manipulate the ball all at the same time you're going to lose the ball
0: when you put it like that it sounds impossible <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> yeah so how do you uh, how do you channel your social work passion in this role now i mean you're you know you're a dad you've got three kids you just had one two weeks ago yeah uh you got a lot going on in your life mm-hmm. How, what what is your outlet for for that passion because i obviously that passion doesn't go away yeah
1: so for our student
0: athletes the uh, it's
1: mandated that they do 10 hours of community service per semester so 20 hours total um the way I present it to you our used to do that in two weeks. Oh yeah. <laughs> The way I present it to our guys is not as something that's mandated or something that is must be done. I present it to our guys in that it is our responsibility because we are on a pedestal in our community as student athletes at a Division One program or at, at a university, and so it's our responsibility to be able to give back to that community that puts you on a pedestal. And be good, positive role models. I mean, the amount of crap you see nowadays in the news and online about pro athletes and student athletes and it's just too much negativity. And I think this is a great way to be able to go out and, and, and give back to our community a little bit and be positive role models, you know, and, and enjoy doing it. You know, I tell our guys every time, if you ask any of the guys, you know, what does Coach Torres say before you do this clinic? Or this pep rally or whatever it may be, they'll tell you right away, it's all about the kids, make sure they're smiling. I don't I, I really at the end of the day I don't care if you're not teaching them the correct way to juggle the ball or to pass the ball or to head the ball. I just want to make sure that kid has a smile and he goes home thinking, Wow, that was so neat. I was able to hang out with Craig and student athletes and it was so cool and I, I wanna be one of those kids one day.
0: Does is, uh, is Carlos get to Omaha sometimes? You're, you're...
1: He has. He's come. And then actually, uh, Marcella, my mother, uh, my adopted mother, is coming at the end of the month with uh, two of my adopted brother's kids. And they're going to take part in one of my Junior J soccer camps. So, oh, really? Yeah, I'm excited.
0: Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can access our library of past podcasts at omaha.com slash podcasts or any of your favorite uh, podcast apps. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have suggestions or ideas for the podcast, email me at dirk.chatelaine at owh.com.